Welcome to our very first Humans of Grinnell live interview series, a program that focuses on Grinnellians discussing various topics related to their experiences. My name is Clara, and I'm joined my by my fellow co-host, Rachel. Um, today, we will be discussing higher education on the show, and we're excited to be joined by Angela Onwachi Willig and Mary Sue Coleman. Angela Onwachi Willig, a graduate of Grinnell College, University of Michigan Law School, and Yale University, is the Dean and the Ryan Roth Gallo and Ernest J. Gallo Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. Previously, she served as the Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley. She's the author of According to Our Hearts, Rhinelander v. Rhinelander, and The Law of the Multiracial Family, and numerous articles in leading law journals. She's a newly elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the recipient of numerous teaching awards, former Iowa Supreme Court finalist, a recipient of Law and Society Association's John Hope Franklin Award, an elected member of the American Law Institute, and the first professor, along with her co-author, Dean Mary Barnes of the University of Washington School of Law, to receive both the Association of American Law Schools, AALS, Hyde Ferguson, and Derrick Bell Awards. More recently, she was one of the five, um, more recently, she was honored as an extraordinary woman in Boston in spring 2020. And she was one of five black women decanal colleagues to receive the inaugural AALS Impact Award. And in recognition of their work in collating the law deans um, and to racist clearinghouse project in 2021. Dean Onwachi Willig serves as the Grinnell College Board of Trustees at the Law School Admissions Council Board, the Purple Campaigns Advisory Board, and the board and is the executive of the Law and Society Association. She serves on the Senator's Warren and Market Judicial Selection and U.S. Attorney Selection Committees. She's a member of the AALS Law Dean Section Executive Committee, the AALS Dean Steering Committee, and the Law Dean's Advisory Committee to U.S. News and World Report, and serves on the Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing while chairing the Law School Subcommittee for that group. Mary Sue Coleman is President Emerita of the Association of American Universities, which represents the country's leading research universities. She's also President Emerita of the University of Michigan and the former president of the University of Iowa. During her career, Coleman has become a national leader in higher education. Time Magazine named her one of the nation's 10 best college presidents, and the American Council on Education honored her with its Lifetime Achievement Award in 2014. Elected to the Institute of Medicine, she's also a fellow of the American Association for Achievement of Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. As a biochemist, Dr. Coleman built a distinguished research career through her research on the immune system and malignancies. For 19 years, she was a member of the biochemistry faculty at the University of Kentucky. Her work in the sciences led to administrative appointments at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the University of New Mexico, where she served as provost and vice president for academic affairs. She earned her bachelor's degree in chemistry from Grinnell College in 1965 and her doctorate in biochem from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1969. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited. And to start our conversation, we would love to hear from you a little bit about how has a liberal arts education influenced your career path and her professional choices. 
Um, so I, I mean, a liberal arts, uh, uh, a liberal arts education is, is, you know, deeply influenced um, um, my career path. I would, I, um, I, you know, I came to uh, Grinnell College. I think not really completely understanding what it meant to have a liberal arts education. Not really being completely green about much in the world, um, and. Um, Having a broad education across disciplines, um, across across um, uh, it, you know uh, across you know fields was really really important for me to understand the very the the many ways in which so many of the problems that occur in our society overlap with each other. That you can't solve any particular kind of societal problem without <laughs> looking at it from different angles. And then it's really important for me as a lawyer, right, in particular, to be understand that. I can't look at a legal problem only as though it's operating within that particular discipline. I've got to look at a legal problem within its broader context. I've got to understand the history that brought us to that particular fact, that particular legal dispute. I've got to understand the social context under which the facts that are sort of governing the case arose. Um, and I've got to understand, uh, you know, the impact on the people for any particular decision. Um, that is created in the law or any particular uh, statute that's written in the law. And so I think uh, having a liberal arts education gave me sort of a broad understanding about the many ways in which our, our, our world is interdisciplinary, right? And so many of the problems that we encounter require an interdisciplinary response. Um, it shaped my um, my career path because in part, number one, just from a, a, a direct standpoint in that, I learned about the law and the impact that the law had on 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 civil the civil rights movement through a couple of courses that I took at Grinnell, which is what drew my interest to um, pursuing law as a as a as a um, um, as a profession. Right. So I um, I am in a Spanish course on Chicano culture and also in a on a on a, on a seminar on American studies, particularly uh, um, on the Black Panther Party. I learned about how both civil rights groups use the law. To assist them in achieving their goals, and that drew me to wanting to know more about this really important tool for creating social change. Um, I think also it prepared me for my career, and for the same reasons, right? That I I wanted to be able to think about how do you help to make our world a better place? How do you help to solve problems? I re really liked thinking deeply about those broad problems, and that was something that I got great training for at Grinnell College. Angela, I'm so happy to hear about the, the experiences that brought you to Grinnell. I grew up in Iowa and my family deeply invested in education. And so I always knew I was going to go to college and probably a liberal arts college uh, because my parents believed in broad preparation with more focus in graduate school. And so uh, Grinnell was a fabulous experience for me. I loved every minute of it. I got deeply invested in studio art while I was at Grinnell, and I doubt that if I had gone to a big university that I would have had that opportunity. So I became a sort of a, a constant. <laughs> I, I guess at first I was an irritant for the people in the, in the studio arts because I became a metalsmith and goldsmith, and I was really interested in design and how, how you did design it particularly how you made metal work. Um, and I learned all sorts of great lost wax techniques uh, 
and 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 I just and I just love that experience. But I also had a tremendous grounding in chemistry, which is what I eventually uh, went on to graduate school with. But also in history and literature, and and things that made my future my path. Though I never started my life thinking that I was going to be a university president. That was not in the cards. Uh, opportunities happened. But because I'd had this broad background, I understood at least something about a broad array of disciplines and how the undergraduate experience should be uh, should be sort of structured. Uh, I was also deeply, deeply interested in affirmative action and in the fact that that was not a word then, but Grinnell students were very activist about social justice issues. And I cared deeply about social justice. Uh, and in fact, ultimately it led to our taking Michigan to the Supreme Court to fight for affirmative action. So, <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that you and I had kind of it, it, the same interesting experiences. Yes, I think it's incredibly helpful to hear about how, especially looking at different problems our society faces from multiple perspectives helps us come up with new solutions um, and new ways of thinking about our issues. I think that's a great segue into our topic. You know, U.S. higher education has developed under several philosophies as to the purpose of attaining that level of education. What do you two see as the purpose of higher education in the United States today? I guess I would say, I think that, you know, there are so many purposes to higher education and I think they're both individual and they're um, societal purposes, right? So for, for some individuals, the purpose is social mobility. The, the primary purpose is social mobility for, for um, you know, but I, so, and I think that's one of the purposes of higher education, right? I think another purpose of higher education is actually, I mean, the, a major purpose is to really teach people how to think critically, the kinds of things that you learn in a liberal arts college. So how do, how do how do we think critically about the world that we're in? How do we reflect on our uh, 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 you know um, on, on the world that we're operating in and, and reflect deeply on ourselves, right? Um, and um, and how do we think about how the kinds of structures that we need to change to make our world more socially just, right? I mean, I think those are. Um, some of the purposes of higher education is to really get people to just think more critically about the world around them. Um, the various components of the world around them and to think uh, uh, deeply about how they operate in a broader community or communities and how do they make those communities better. Um, uh, and I, and I, you know, I would say, I would hope, you know, I would like to see, you know, primary and secondary education or particularly secondary education be also focused more on those kinds of um, those kinds of goals as well, really, um, because it shouldn't only be happening at the higher education level. Yeah, I, I what I always tell students about uh, making their selections and making a decision about going to college is what, what higher education does is give you options in life. And uh, you don't know when you're a high school student or even sometimes in college what you're ultimately going to do. And so by educating yourself, you're investing in yourself, actually, um, you can go many different paths. Uh, and I think that uh, certainly my career has shown that I took paths that I never imagined that I would take when I was a student at, at Grinnell. 
and so, so Angela is absolutely right. I, you know, I think Angela, this notion that there's the private good and there's the public good. The public good of having an educated populace and having more people think critically and understand what the policy issues are, what the implications are for our society to try to tackle some of these problems. We need people who have a grounding uh, in, in education uh, that they can know how to tackle issues. They can know how to sort of change people's minds. So there's both a private good and a public good for higher education. Uh, and, and one of the things that I've often said about the United States is that it has this enormous spectrum of institutions all the way from community colleges and technical schools to you know graduate school and everything in between and this provides uh, enormous opportunity for young people uh, which I think has been a one of the one of the characteristics of the success of the United States and the fact that we have been able to maintain a democracy is having an educated populace. Thomas Jefferson was absolutely right when he posited uh, for men, not for women, but at least he posited for men, for white men, uh, that uh, that higher education was important to the maintenance of democracy. Well, that was very insightful. And talking a little bit more about the public good part of higher education, this year, UNESCO is planning to launch its Futures of Education report, and the main topic is learning to become. So, as our society learns to become more resilient, especially in those rapidly changing times and facing very unique challenges such as the pandemic, what do you see as the role of higher, in higher education institutions in contributing to build this resilience for our society? Well, I'll try to tackle that first. Um, you know, I, it, as, as, as people understand, as they are educated more, as they understand how to validate uh, what, what we think we know, that is, how do you analyze evidence? How do you make evidence-based decisions? Uh, because sort of in everything that we do, you know, we're going to need to have facts. We're going to need to be able to tell what is true versus what is not true. And that's become more and more important in the last four years in our country. Uh, and, and, and so the more that we can, can create that kind of environment, I think one of the things Grinnell students learn, they do learn resilience uh, as part of their liberal education. And the best institutions are the ones that teach students how to accept uh, sort of things that don't go quite right and how to make better decisions uh, in their lives. And that's what, what learning how to, to gain the evidence you need to make good decisions is all about. So, so that's how I view it. I don't know a lot about what UNESCO is planning, but I think that uh, this will be a very good uh, strategy for them to take. Yeah, I would. Um, I, I agree with everything um, that Dr. Coleman said as as well, and I would or Mary Sue Coleman said as well. And I would um, I would say that you know the 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 teaching kind of goes both ways. I mean, I find that there are many many students who come to college, who come to law school already, who are what I would say already experts in resilience. That they have already encountered so much in their lives, and they have overcome it. Um, they have worked hard, uh, and um, you know, um, and and that we we in edu higher education have a lot to learn from them as well. And so I think one of the things that we can do to 
um, to help students um, learn resilience is to facilitate um, interactions and in particular facilitate interactions with people who have really diverse experiences, diverse backgrounds, because I think that's one way that people begin to learn about the different realities that people encounter and the different ways in which people have have grappled with um, uh, um, those uh, those uh, um, those realities and some of the obstacles that some people have overcome. overcome. Um, I, I think also in terms of, you know, um, you know, how do you shift between different worlds, right? I think that's one of the things. And so everybody who's coming to college is coming from a home that they knew relatively well, or some people, or most people are coming from a home they knew relatively well to a completely different place where now they're living with, you know, a, a different community and and different different people, different leaders and different teachers and um, and I think that one of the things that you do throughout your life, you know, even in small ways and in big ways, is that you're constantly shifting in between different worlds. And so, how do you adapt between those different worlds that you're operating in? And I think that liberal arts, liberal arts education, has prepared many students well for that. And um, and then I think just being uncomfortable with as. Uh, Mary Sue Coleman said, I think being 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 comfortable, becoming more comfortable with things when they go wrong and learning from failure and learning from mistakes is so critical. And I think when you're particularly young, it's so hard to think that you are, you know, that uh, you, you think mistakes are much greater than they are. Um, um, and, um, and, you know, somebody said something that, you know, we really need to teach people more of, of someone I was talking to the other day, teach people more how to fail forward. And I think that that is a, a really incredible, uh, incredibly important skill for, for um, students to learn. Failing forward is a really interesting concept. I just want to ask you if you would tease that out a little bit and talk about, um, maybe how failing forward can extend beyond our individual students failing forward and um, bring that into their space as leaders in the future. Yeah, I mean, so there, it, could be, it could be in a wide variety of ways. In this particular context, this person was talking about encountering a class that they had a difficult time with. And so the one way to actually literally fail forward would be academically, a class they had a difficult time with and, and, they, and they actually failed that course but they learned a lot in that process of failing, right? They learned a lot about um, 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 not being shameful, right? Not, you know, and overcoming shame and um, getting back in there and um, taking the course again and prevailing, right? And this person's had an incredibly successful career despite actually failing a course in their lives. Failing forward could be that you say something that, um, um, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about this because I think one of the things that we we do in higher education is we teach students how to live with each other. Most students grow up in really, really segregated, racially segregated environments, right? We are more segregated than even than in the 1970s, in some cases in the 1960s, depending on the various communities. And um, uh, and so then they're coming into many colleges and we're talking about a residential college or university. Um, which is tend tend to be some of the more just diverse, racially diverse spaces that we have in our country, and now they're interacting with on a more regular basis with people who might have different backgrounds. And some people worry about saying or doing things out of fear that they're going to offend or not, and then they don't learn as a result of not, you know, maybe going to an event where you're going to be the only person, 
or maybe, uh, you know, holding, biting your tongue instead of saying something, and maybe you get it wrong, maybe you offend people, but you learn through that process. I mean, so it could be, there's so many different ways of failing forward, but it's simply being comfortable, I guess I would say with, uh, and, and maybe not even being comfortable, but rec recognizing or acknowledging that all of us make mistakes and that there is something to be learned from those mistakes, even when they seem really, um, even when they seem really, um, um, you know, heart, when they're really heart wrenching and they're really difficult to to sort of absorb at the time. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. Um, I want to touch a little bit further on resiliency, the pandemic, and what education looks like now. So prior to the pandemic, the U.S. higher education system boasted some of the most socioeconomically and racially diverse student bodies ever. Um, at the same time, the United States continues to become more diverse as a nation. How have you seen pandemic inequalities and in access to academic learning and research resources affect those current trends in student success? And to put it maybe a little bit more frankly, what difficulties do you anticipate to this prior <laughs> progress as a result of the pandemic? Well, the pandemic has been uh, a disaster. <laughs> Uh, for the country as a whole, and uh, very troubling issues in higher education as a consequence. Um, most many institutions uh, lost money uh, during the pandemic. Uh, many students were not able to keep up with their studies. I know that uh, that for some, you know, and particularly those students who did not have good internet connections, uh, sort of like what we're experiencing today, at least I'm experiencing. <laughs> uh, it's very hard to be in a classroom where, where it's asynchronous and, and, and you have, and you're not able to participate in discussions. And, you know, one of the, one of the, the tremendous benefits of being, uh, you know, in a residential campus, and, and I know all campuses are not residential and there's a place for every kind of learning. But it, you know, it's so something that Angela said. You are put in the in, in the presence of people who have completely different backgrounds from you and have different items to bring to the table. And one of the things that I appreciated so much about my experience in Grinnell were many of the the conversations and the the sort of debates that took place outside the classroom. You know, when we were in a dorm and we're a residence hall, not dorm, but we were, were we were at the forum or, you know, or we were we were had visiting speakers and we could debate things and we could argue. And 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 it was it was that it was that's the magic. That's when the magic happens. Um, and so the so this 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 has been a tough year. And I think coming back is going to be tough for people because you not only have the new freshmen coming in, the new students, but now you've got these students who weren't able to be on campus. They were, they were new students last year, and now they're rising sophomores, but they're all sort of experiencing things at the same time. And, and I think that's going to be, that's going to be kind of tough. And, and I think it's important for faculty and for leaders of institutions to figure out how to make the make those transitions easier. Uh, you know, there's been some loss. I mean, I think there's been academic loss through this. It, it's perhaps more acute in high school and, and elementary school than in higher education. At least I hope that's the case. But we have a lot of repair to do 
uh, as a consequence. It, at least that's that's my impression. And you know, Angela, I'd, I'd be interested in what you're seeing from the Northeast. Uh, you may you may have a different sort of situation there than than it is out here in uh, in uh, Denver. I think it's. I mean, I, I, I actually I would co-sign everything that you've said, Mary Sue, and I, and, um, um, I, 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 I think that the pandemic um, has had a, um, you know, really harmful harmful effect on higher education in many ways, and and I'll, I'll note one positive uh, impact. But I think that you know, of course, the financial losses to institutions, um, the impact on 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 you know on particular students, whether it be. Um, um, inequitable access to um, to um, internet that can support uh, their signing into classes, as, as Mary Sue pointed out. Um, a number of students, in particular, I know students of color have, have, have there's been an increase in the number of students of color that are dropping out. That people are going to be finishing later, or maybe not returning. We know often when people have to drop out of college that, um, depending upon the particular context, and often for many people, that means that they aren't coming back. Um, 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 uh, food insecurity issues that have occurred, of course, um, and a number of students having to, to, you know, um, to take on responsibilities to help their families even more, even if they were helping them in college and now, now having to take on further responsibilities to help their families get by in a time and where, when people have lost their jobs, when they have lost, literally lost family members and people have lost their lives as, as well. So the stresses have been enormous on our entire society, and on some communities have been affected more than than others. I, I would say the one it's not uh, one positive that's come out of it is I think that one of the things that it's done is that it exposed, I mean, the, exposed the inequities that are always that have always existed right on campuses um, between students, right. Um, Based on a variety of factors, in particular socioeconomic background, um, um, and, and so I think that there's more conversation about it, and there's more conversation about how do you really create a truly equitable ex experience and truly equitable access to the education that all institutions are delivering. I think that there's just more institutions are having those conversations, and so I think that's been a positive uh, of the pandemic. But of course, you know. You know, it's, there's been so much harm and destruction um, as a result of it. Yes, that's a great point. Um, actually, I'd love to talk a little bit about growth opportunities both of you are seeing for in in response to this pandemic. Um, I know I didn't originally ask this, but I think that's a great thing to talk about. Um, I'd love to hear your opinions. Well, what 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 specifically do you mean by growth opportunities? How are, I guess, how are the difficulties faced in the past year, year and a half as a result of going online or being just less um, directly connected with less high touch on each individual student? How is that translating to opportunities of growth in higher education, um, growth in services, perhaps, um, or growth in the ways that we perform outreach to our students? Well, I, I guess I, I, I guess it will depend on the, the type of institution. Um, I, I don't know, Angela, what, what's your thinking about that from, oh, from the Boston are, University? Yeah, I, I was yeah. going to say it depends on how you're defining growth, right? If you mean literal growth in the actual population of institutions, it depends on how you're defining the institutions. I, but I think if you mean growth in terms of how 
um, institutions are thinking about serving the full population um, uh, uh, in a more equitable fashion. And I think, you know, there there have been really important conversations about mental health and, and mm -hmm. how we talk about mental health and, and well-being on, on campuses um, and provide services for students. And it's, it's a conversation we've been having more and thinking more about, uh, and in particular, um, um, uh, communities where there might be a culture of not seeking out service or um, or an unawareness about not seeking out uh, mental health um, uh, assistance and so or or well-being assistance and so more uh, more, more programs and more um, more um, uh, more counselors available for for mental health counseling and then more programs on sort of proactive well-being, growth mindset programs, those kinds of things. I think you see that happening. Certainly here that's happening more. I think definitely more conversations about the kinds of things that make um, colleges and universities challenging for some students, the cost of books, and how do you grapple? How do you think about how do you make um, access to the materials that students need to study for classes more equitable, right? Because there's in many ways, nothing more inequitable than not having equal access to the materials that you need to study for your classes. And so I think a lot more programs are talking more about those kinds of issues. And um, uh, I, I think a, a number of programs, luckily Grinnell is in a, is in a, in a better position than, than many places because of its large endowment to think about, you know, um, um, how do you grapple with financial aid in a way um, that would allow, especially because you have more students who need financial aid in these moments, right? During the pandemic, when parents have lost jobs, and um, um, you know, how do you and Grinnell announced it's no loans, right? No, the, you know, no, no. In terms of demonstrated need, that that need will be met um, by scholarship and grant money, not not by loans at at, at Grinnell College. And I think you have schools thinking more deeply about those questions. Um, and responding to so much of what's been exposed um, about inequity during the pandemic. But I, and, and then on the other side of growth, I do think that more, there are also more greater conversations about what can be done in terms of either making education more accessible because of the ways in which we can do deliver um, deliver classes um, digitally or, you know, um, or, 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 or remotely. Um, I have mixed feelings about that because I think about someone like myself, I learned a lot in terms of being around people coming from the community that I came from to coming to Grinnell. There was a lot about culture and learning about the way people talk, um, those kinds of things that you get acculturated to that I, I don't think I would have gotten through taking a class online that I certainly got having to live with people every day and be in a classroom with them. And so what I do worry about is that if we do move to a fully remote kind of educational system, that it will actually create a greater class divide. And so then, um, 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 and so I, I actually worry a, a little bit about that. So Angela, the other thing is that students hate uh, online learning and uh, faculty hate online teaching. <laughs> That's the result of, uh, of, of, of you know, Pew surveys that have been done. This is not a popular way to learn. <laughs> That's true. That is really true. Um, yeah, that's very true. Yes, I think, I think there's something incredibly privileged about the living learning community that we get at 
you know, in, in the context of our in-person classes, as well as, you know, the learning that goes on in our dorm halls, in the dining hall, when we're talking to our friends, um, that might, I can definitely see that becoming more of a divide than less post-pandemic. Um, hopefully not, though. I do want to talk, lastly, a little bit about debt and what is currently being termed the student debt crisis in the United States. Um, I want to hear a little bit about how you two separately conceptualize the relationship between students incurring debt and the value of their education. Um, and is using that debt to finance education a positive for students in society? So, so let me just give you a, a little bit of a fact. Uh, the Bureau, the Brookings Institution just came out with some statistics and 69% of students in this country take undergraduates take out loans and the average debt is 29, about $29,000. And if you think about that in the context of debt that people take on, you know, it's about what a car car debt would be. And, but with student debt, you're investing in yourself. You're not investing in something that's going to lose value as soon as you uh, drive it off the sales lot. So, so for undergraduates, uh, you, you know, I, I think debt will always be a part of the equation of financial aid uh, at a place like Grinnell, when you can, you know, Grinnell has the resources, it's fantastic. And I hope other institutions will be trying to build up their endowments so that they can help with financial aid because that's extremely important. I think doubling the Pell Grant is extremely important in this country to provide more opportunity for people. Most of the debt though, the higher education debt is held in the graduate and professional schools, particularly professional masters. And so this is an area where I do think there needs to be more education to students about taking on debt in many PhD programs uh, you know, you get a fellowship or you get an assistantship, and so it's virtually free, but not true in law school, not true in medical school, not true in some of these professional schools. And that's an area where I think we do need to struggle, we need to grapple with it and make it easier for students uh, to be able to access those that kind of higher education. But for me, I mean, this number, the number trillion, it doesn't mean anything because you are you you are aggregating you know a whole big loan portfolio including the not for profit and the for profit schools that are charging way too much for what they're what they're giving students so i think you have to be very careful and parse the information and see actually where where the where the where the difficulties lie now at the political level there's a lot of conversation going on about making a community college free uh, to people, you know, is that that might be a good policy uh, sort of <clears throat> strategy to take for the country because education is good for the country. I, I, I think I, I tend to sort of think about working on the Pell Grant side rather than simply making the first two years of college free um, because there are, there are a lot of people that can afford to pay to go to college and, you know, they should pay their fair share. So I so, so I think this is an interesting conversation to have, um, and, you know, it's one that we should debate as a society. I, I, you know, I, I, um, I, I agree with, um, with everything that Mary Sue said, and I, and I definitely fall on in the camp of um, uh, would like to see greater aid for people who are in need of that aid. Um, I think that, um, um, and and. Um, I think that 
you know, it's complicated, right? I mean, of course, yeah. we often see disparities, <laughs> disparities along debt lines too that that are really linked to historical discrimination, right? The history of our country, right? We see racial mm -hmm. death disparities, right? Um, particular yeah. um, black and brown students take on more debt, take a longer time to pay debt, you know, come tend on you know tend to come from poor families, and so I think we really need to work at reducing those disparities and taking that into account and looking everything at everything broader. So that goes very much in line with um, um, with expanding, knee doubling the Pell Grant, whatever, even tripling, whatever that whatever is needed to make um, college more accessible and less of a struggle for for those who are most in need um, of assistance. Um, I I think. Uh, again, very important. You're investing in yourself. Um, I was somebody who was incredibly terrified of debt, um, just because I'd grown up seeing a lot of debt without um, growing up in a family that had debt without having um, 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 assets, right? And so I didn't want to. I didn't understand money, and I didn't understand, um, you know, I didn't understand um, um, the the pay the payoff that comes with um, at receiving the education that I received, right? Because the what I could imagine I would get at the end of my education was it was I was out of the realm of my thinking, right? It was, I couldn't even I couldn't even imagine it, and so um, so I think that is part of it too. I think is you know we need to do just greater financial literacy education as well. Um, um, I think people take that for granted and institutions of higher education, people take that for granted that people come in knowing those things in college, in law school, even in law school or ever medical school. And I think there has to be more education along those lines. I think that, um, you know, frankly, we know that the debt is um, more likely to be a, 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 um, um, a better payoff for places like Grinnell, right? Places that you know you're going to go to that have a higher graduation rate. That's what as I always, I always tell the students: look at the look at the the, the actually the some of the most ex, the places that look like the, the most expensive are those places that you should be applying to because they're going to meet your full need. You take out debt. You're there. They've got the services and and support there that are designed to help you get to graduation. And graduating is really important. And there are a lot of institutions that may be cheaper on the front end, but they may not have all the services to help you get through to the end. And so I think part of it is. Um, you know, I don't know where you put that level of education so that people have all of those options and understand all of the things that they're doing. I feel lucky that I just kind of fell into it, but I think there are a lot of people who who um, could have those same options who don't get them and then find themselves in completely different circumstances. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. That's very, very interesting. Um, for now, we will be taking questions from the audience. So, and other questions will be collected also for a post-event Q&A from our guests. Um, yeah, I'm getting the questions. So, our first question is from Howard Shane, and his question is, with the large number of college students now being adult learners, commuters, etc., what do you see as the future for the traditional model for undergraduate education? For example, directly um, after high school, go away to college where students 
of the 18 to 24 age group leave, for example, Grinnell and Michigan. I think I think um, you know Grinnell and Michigan are on pretty rarefied air and are going to probably continue to offer um, mm -hmm. that traditional model of education. Um, and I mean, and I think that's I think that's great. I think there's a lot that I mean. I'm very grateful for my um, experience that I had at Grinnell, and so I hope that it actually continues the residential. I will very much believe in um, the residential higher ed model of education and I, I think there's so many incredible benefits for it. Um, I think that uh, Mary Sue hit, you know, you know, made the great point about that one of the great things about the United States is that there's so many different types of institutions and there's so many different types of possibilities um, for people who are seeking um, a, a college education. And so that is, um, you know, it's a wonderful thing about about the country, and um, I, and I think the only thing that we need to do more of is maybe offer a greater support, as as she pointed out earlier, with programs, higher, you know, larger programs. Yeah, you know, that's that, that's really a good point. I, you know, I I think Grinnell and the Michigans of the world, and the Harvards and the Yales, and all the schools that are are privileged by having enough financial resources will continue to offer um, you know, the undergraduate experience for students of, in, the, in that age cohort, you know, 18 to 22, something in that range. And, and there'll always be students who want to take that next step. I, but we do need to be thinking um, about, you know, particularly uh, sort of the adult learner, the people who need to come back and get a new level of skill set. You know, they can't move across the country to become residential students. And so they need access uh, to institutions sort of in their geographic area. Uh, the community colleges, uh, which I think have enormous regard for community colleges, because I think they can provide targeted skills training uh, uh, sort of opportunities. And there, you know, there's some states like California where they've got a big population of of students wanting higher education where community college is the route to Berkeley and UCLA and the, and the UCs because you have to go to community college first and then you, you get a good academic preparation at community, which they also do well in addition to skills training. You get that first, then you go on to, to your, you know, your more elite selective uh, education. So as a state, you know, California has really structured this in a very interesting and I think efficient way. And of course, Angela, you had experience in the state of California, so you know a lot more about it than I do. Um, but but those those are the kind of, of things that I that I think are important. Now, um, you know, if, if there's a big need to retrain adult learners, uh, you know, to really participate. In a, in a new way, you know, will some institutions and, you know, particularly regional institutions, will they be offering opportunities to do this for, you know, what we would consider the traditional four year? Yeah, they probably will. I mean, one of the things I admire so much about higher education is the flexibility of, of, of our institutions, both public and private, and adapting to circumstance. I mean, there have been a lot of predictions in the past. I remember about 10 years ago, you know, the, the, you know, the, the people were saying, or some great people with presumably great wisdom that residential campuses were going to go away. Well, 
Do you think because of online learning? Do you think that's happened? Do you think that's going to happen? No, it's not going to happen. So, so talk about resiliency. I think the higher education <laughs> institutions in this country are among the most resilient, along with the church. They have they have persisted for for eighteen for eight hundred years. So we must have something going for us that we've been able to survive whatever is happening economically in the globe that that we've been around for so long in basically unchanged form, you know. <laughs> I, I will say, um, Howie, I, I read an article about a, a, a Philadelphia small large college, and I wish I remembered the name of it now. That uh, it was in Phil, it was in the city that had reached out to people who went to the school, but didn't finish and mm -hmm. offered them scholarships to come back. And I thought that was a great story. I actually forwarded it to, um, to uh, President Harris when I, when, I, uh, when I saw that article, because I thought it was great because I, I can think of people who went to Grinnell um, with me who were a year away or a semester away from graduating and had to drop out for one reason or another. And I thought that it was a, it was a, Great story, and this person was interviewing somebody who had, who who was going back to get their degree after being out for some time, and I could see maybe more places doing that. Yeah. They're moving in that direction. That, that that's a really good point, uh, and I, you know, I think more institutions may be sort of thinking along those lines um, to try to help people get over the finish line. Yes, thank you so much. I think that's all the question and answers we had from the audience. Um, but I wanted to thank you all for joining us today. For more information about the interviews and the upcoming shows, you can visit the Humans of Grinnell Facebook page or check the alumni website where we'll be posting each of the shows. Um, but thank you everyone for tuning in and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Coleman. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I've been a lot, a big fan of yours for.